Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, how to get 20, 20, 20, how to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So, Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. This episode of Canada Land is brought to you by Douglas, a mattress that is trusted by more than 200,000 Canadians from coast to coast to coast. It's a great mattress at a very reasonable price point. Comes with a 20-year warranty and a great deal for our listeners. Douglas is giving you a free sleep bundle with each mattress purchase. Get the sheets, pillows, mattress, and pillow protectors free with your Douglas purchase today. Visit douglas.ca slash CanadaLand to claim this offer. That is douglas.ca slash CanadaLand. This episode is brought to you by the Center for Addiction and Mental Health here in Toronto. Cutting-edge, state-of-the-art, compassionate facility. Right now, it is Mental Health Awareness Week. This is the time when they need you most. This is the time when you can make a real difference when it comes to doing something about the mental health crisis and the devastating opioid epidemic, the overdose epidemic that we're currently experiencing, losing 20 people every day. They need your help. Donate at camh.ca slash CanadaLand to help CAMH treat addiction and build hope. The big problem with the conversation about climate change is not that people don't believe in it. It's that pretty much everybody does believe in it. I've believed in global warming since 1990, when the Golden Girls, Kermit the Frog, Tone Loke, and the rest of television's brightest stars told me all about it on the Earth Day special. Hey, Uncle Kermit, could we become extinct? Well, it's possible, unless people can try to fix the damage they've caused to the Earth. So it's really not up to us. No, it's not. It's up to people. I've been recognized by the world for being humorous, but in all my years of rapping, this is the gloomiest rhyme I've ever written or bore the burden to narrate. The game is destroyed the world. Now let me commentate. Every time you put a paint can in the trash can, you take a piece of the world from the next man. All together, I need your help in the worst way. Let's all take a part for the cause here on Earth Day. Toxic chemicals are so corrosive. Everything flammable and even the Hey, boys, you ought to check up on the environment. Then maybe you'll get some respect, huh? <laughs> hey, honey, the environment's getting better already, huh? 
God. What kind of people would let such a thing happen to our planet? Gee, Daddy, is the Earth really coming to an end? Not fast enough for me, Pumpkin. And I still believed in global warming 16 years later, in 2006, when Al Gore told me that we had to act right now to prevent a global catastrophe. The scientific consensus is that we are causing global warming. This is really not a political issue so much as a moral issue. Temperature increases are taking place all over the world, and that's causing stronger storms. This is the biggest crisis in the history of this country. Could it be that Al Bundy and Al Gore were both lying to me? No. Their science was sound. I believe in climate change. I, I don't even like saying I believe in climate change. That suggests that it's something that you have a choice as to whether or not to like climate change just is regardless of my personal feelings about it. The thing that feels like a wild leap of faith is believing that I can do anything about it. That's the part that never washed with me. That's the part where I think Kermit the Frog lied was in telling me that the responsibility for reversing this was in whether or not I reused my Big Mac styrofoam container. You know, that's the part where I feel like we were swindled because the responsibility for this was always going to really reside at the industrial governmental policy level and in suggesting to us that it was up to us as consumers to stop this. They kind of lost me there. And I don't know, maybe that's part of why I don't really like coverage of climate change. I mean, part of it is like, if you've already convinced me that we are hurtling towards the end of mankind, how am I supposed to give a damn about how badly Canada missed its carbon emission target this year? I've been wrestling with this question. How should the media cover climate change? I promised you that we would look at that on this show. What is the best way to actually regard what is the biggest issue of our era? Really the biggest problem that humanity has ever faced and yet, I find myself bored by the coverage of it. Can I admit that? I find stories about climate change boring. I know that that's bad. I feel terribly guilty about it. I should care about it. It should be interesting. Why wouldn't it be interesting? Death, destruction, violence. We like pictures. It's got pictures. It's got fire and explosions. It's got everything we should want. It could happen to you. How does this affect me? It's affecting you. This isn't happening in the future. It's outside your door. Yet I'm bored. I don't find these stories compelling. I have no good answers, people. I know the bad coverage when I see it. My guest today knows how it should not be done. It particularly irritates her because her job is to do the other thing. She's trying to do in-depth, quality, engaging coverage of global warming and climate change. And what she has done, Lauren Calger of Discourse Media, she has cherry-picked some of the greatest misses of the media's coverage of global warming. She's going to take us through some of the laziest tropes and the most wrong-headed approaches to this that newsreaders have experienced. And she is going to try to convince me that there is a better way, that this stuff can be covered in a way that is both substantial and nourishing and engaging. I'm open to being convinced. Lauren Calger joins me in a moment. Wait for it. This episode of Canada Land is brought to you by Victoria Stevens, Shane McDonald, Kendall Donahue, Christy Schulz, Caitlin Brown, Sarah Bowles, Colleen Armstrong, and Lee Lavis. I'm Lee Lavis, and I work as a learning technologist in London, England. 
I support Canada Land because it provides a more nuanced view of the Canadian media landscape. As an expat, I value Canada Land's effort to reveal a side of Canada that is more complex than it is often parodied to be. This episode is brought to you by Douglas, a mattress trusted by more than 200,000 Canadians from coast to coast to coast. Trust is important. There are a lot of mattress lies out there, a lot of mattress liars. And I, I, I didn't intend the pun, but it occurred to me that there is one as I was saying those words. Listen, I am not lying to you. Uh, I have uh, experienced the Douglas mattress. It is an exceptional mattress at a surprisingly affordable price point. It is a mattress that sleeps cool. It doesn't have that weird thing in the summer where the mattress gets like an oven. It's a very good product. It's delivered to your house in a box. You don't have to go to a big mattress store. It is a medium firm mattress, which is what Canadians prefer, and it comes with a 365-night trial and a 20-year warranty. What more can I tell you? Douglas is giving our listeners a free sleep bundle with each mattress purchase. Get the sheets, pillows, mattress, and pillow protectors free with your Douglas purchase today. Visit douglas.ca slash CanadaLand to claim this offer. This episode is sponsored by BetterHelp. Uh, it's amazing the things that we tell ourselves to talk ourselves out of getting help. Anybody who's actually gotten help knows that the process of getting things off your chest, of taking your stressors, your problems, and just like not letting them be bottled up, working through just conveying them to somebody, half of the battle is just doing that. You unburden yourself. And you know what? If you have a real mental health professional, no, they don't have magic bullets or magic words that make it all go away. But often they can help you see things a little bit differently and guide you to strategies or tools or to a new perspective that actually does help. As the largest online therapy provider in the world, BetterHelp can provide access to mental health professionals with a wide variety of expertise in mental health. Because you listen to this podcast, you get 10% off of your first month at BetterHelp.com slash CanadaLand. That's BetterHelp.com slash CanadaLand. My name is Lauren Kelger. I'm a reporter, producer, all kinds of things at The Discourse. Hi, Lauren. Hi. Lauren, um, I know that you have assembled for us some some of the greatest misses in environmental reporting or what should be environmental reporting. I'm hoping you can just sort of take us through a bunch of stories where you feel like like things could have been better. Yeah, absolutely. Okay, this one's from April 2018, CBC. Nearly a third of Canadians don't believe humans and industry mostly cause climate change. Poll. You know, we see these kinds of polls all the time. And in response to another kind of similar headline from the Toronto Star, Jennifer Hollett tweeted, it's 2019. Can we stop reporting on climate change like it's Santa? And this is a really valid point. I just... I guess the point here is like, where does this get us? Like they're depressing, they're conversation starters. I guess people share these kinds of stories. But I mean, if you're not understanding, for instance, the difference between weather and climate, maybe that's an issue that we should probably try to do a job of explaining as journalists. So there's that aspect to it. But then I just don't understand, like, it, where where is it getting us? I guess I see your irritation with this. On the one hand, if you were to run a news story that revealed that a significant percentage of the population thought that the earth was flat. And God help us, there might actually be 
Who knows? If you were to bother yeah. to do that poll, and then you'd have kind of a shocking headline, 10% of Canadians think the earth is flat. And I guess the impact of that would be like, wow, some people are really dumb. You know, perhaps the buttresses are what we know to be true, <laughs> you know, that the earth is round. You could see that this is a version of that. Like, wow, isn't it incredible that almost 33% of Canadians don't believe science? But are you worried, Lauren, that it has the opposite effect? Like it presents climate change as something that's that's still up for debate, that it's just sort of a matter of personal belief? Yeah. I mean, I think this is on par with like a lot of the climate denialist tweets from Trump. I think, you know, it's like that Don Cherry segment from um, Coach's Corner from Hockey Night that was shared very, very widely. There's my friend Willie right there, and he predicts six more weeks of cold weather. Now, I'd like to ask you with your left-wing pinkle friends, Yes. what about the warming trend? Like, what, like where does that come now? You know all about that. But oh. what? We, do you really want to get into that? No, I'm just asking you. The, the kookaloos are always saying the warming trend. We're freezing to death. We're, yeah, we're if this is a genuine confusion, i.e., like, confusion around thermodynamics and not understanding the difference between weather and climate, I think that's something that we need to address and further alienating people and making the smart people feel like, oh my God, look at how dumb people are. And then just, I just think it presents more confusion and division than, than it's worth. I guess you don't care whether or not the intention is to shame those ignorant people, you know, while rewarding those informed people, or if the intention uh, is to open up climate change is a matter of personal belief. Either way, like what's the fucking point of this poll and, and, and a news story about it? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, we know where polls get us with elections. I think it's the same story. All right. What else you got? So this one's from Canadian Press from August of this year. It looked like the apocalypse. Wildfires in B.C. prompt evacuation orders, turn skies orange across Alberta. I mean, with this one, you could really this was from 2018, but you could really supplant the same headline uh, for 2017 wildfires. OK, so wildfires are like climate change in the flesh for Canada, for a lot of places in the world. And yet the headlines and the storyline is, is so similar. It's like, you know, these record breaking events, all of this damage. Look at all the damage that's caused. Look at all the people that are hurt. Look at this messed up evacuation. The flames are already destroying buildings and forcing people out. As if the wildfire danger hasn't felt real enough, people in Prince George woke up to dark skies. It is. It's yeah, we estimate the size to be about uh, 422,000 hectares today, which is uh, a pretty significant growth. That's about an area the size of the city of Calgary. It's minute by minute and supplies are running out. Run out of sprinklers, <laughs> um, getting lawn garden hoses. The overwhelming clouds of smoke are gigantic, increasingly dangerous and constantly on the move. Kind of looks like a scene from a Terminator movie, the end of the world. And Calgary, too, has struggled. With nearly dark. 600 fires burning across the province, it's likely residents still have weeks of uncertainty ahead. And then there's a pause, and then we repeat the entire thing over again. And I just feel like it's a bit like Groundhog Day. It's really unfortunate. And I guess the big thing for me here, Jesse, is that like, when you interview people who are in moments of crisis, they're they're in an insane moment of trauma. And yes, it's important to hear from them and to like humanize the story. But actually, if you interview them two months down the road, which I did because I wrote a um, wildfire newsletter called The Firebreak, and I was very deliberate about 
talking to people like in the shoulder season, in between seasons, and people actually have like tons of really insightful things to say about what could be done differently, about um, how reporting was like not done well, what they'd like other people to know and understand if they were ever to face this insane experience again. And I just feel like so much of that is lost when we're just trapped in this predictable cycle of reporting. I hear you, but I'm also trying, like, what are we supposed to do? Not report on a wildfire? Like, this is like, it's almost the opposite of the usual thing, which is this is, uh, you're telling me that the world is ultimately, you know, going to face some kind of cataclysmic, apocalyptic, uh, you know, crisis. That's way off in the future. That's not news. Why should I care? And then the answer is often, well, you'll care when there's like, you know, extreme weather events that are actually like either flooding or burning you out of your home, because that's where this is leading. So now we're on the other end of it, and it's actually like, knocking on your door and it's in a, it's in a format that the news is comfortable with, right? Like Mm -hmm. large scale shifts in climate over the course of decades or hundreds of years is news is not so good at that, but what's happening on your street is where news thrives and a fire in a neighborhood is always going to get covered. So like you're not you're not objecting to wildfires being covered, are you? Oh no, absolutely not. And and it it's really important. I mean, those local news reporters especially are really in the front lines and day and night reporting on the issue emits a lot of confusion and and that stuff is really important. CBC did a great job of it um, in the last two years and actually talk about public service. I mean, helping people understand where the evacuations are, where to go. I mean, this is like absolutely so important. What I'm saying is it's, um, you know, if you were to to be out in the field, for instance, like in Ashcroft, where I was in June of this year, I met a woman of Ashcroft First Nation who's living in a motel still from the 2017 fires. This is in June of 2018. There's just so much that we could be doing if we took the time to report um like sustained reporting on this issue and not just crisis driven. The crisis stuff is important. That's I just feel like they're separate, but the stories are still happening and there's stuff to be learned from it that I think we have a responsibility to share. So are you saying that we should like stick around after the crisis? I mean, you are saying that and talk to the people a year later, whether it's Fort McMurray or BC or what's happening in California. I mean, you could just go on and on as to all the places where it's happening. Mm-hmm. I'm hearing you say that we should we should stick around and see how those people are doing later on. Is it also getting there before it happens? Oh, yeah. I mean, we, like, we know this is going to happen again. It's going to happen again every year. Absolutely. And, you know, there, there are so many solutions that I think are lost. You know, there's like, it's a public policy, huge challenge, right? Because budgets are being overblown, spending all this money on fire suppression when there's all this stuff that we could be doing to prevent this. And yeah, there's a huge public education component. I mean, like, you look at the Fire Smart program, like, there's so much stuff that homeowners can and should be doing um, that we're just not. And so there's tons of work that that does need to be done beforehand. And, you know, fire scientists are really smart. They know where this stuff is going to happen and uh, what can and should be done. Are you also advising that like the connection is lacking to climate change? I mean, I remember when the Fort McMurray fire was blazing there was like, it was highly politicized and anybody who even breathed a word about climate change because, you know, there was a sense of irony, I suppose, to the oil sands, you know, like anybody who said anything that, that suggested, oh, you're getting what you deserve or you reap what you sow was just eaten alive online. And, you know, perhaps justifiably, you know, those moments of crisis 
are the moments when it gets so politically volatile to draw those connections. Do you think we need more of that connection or? Yeah. And I think that's what I'm seeing that happen. There's just no denying it. And it's also, it makes climate change not only real in our faces, but also a public health crisis. There's so many uh, health issues associated with wildfires that are like really a big problem. But yeah, I think that's, again, if you were to sit down with people and really ask them how they feel about climate change, there aren't many deniers there that I've spoken to anyway. And then it's also understanding like the other big complex side of this, which is that like often wildfires are followed by floods. So in BC, you had like in Cache Creek, you have these massive floods that also took down places that actually were hit really hard from wildfires this season before, because that's a really common thing for obvious reasons in that like the vegetation is blown away and it can't soak up the water. This kind of thing is also lost this connection between these weather events and the connection to climate change. So again, it's like, it's the stuff that you can't get at in moments of crisis. You have to get at it through in-depth reporting. You know, it's, it's kind of a catch-22 because when you're outside of crisis, there's a lot of pushback in, in mentioning climate change where you'll get a lot of responses of like, this is a fantasy, you know, show me like the practical application. Hey, it's warmer than ever. We had a record uh, winter, you know, those kinds of responses. And then when it actually is real, it's like, that's impolite. How dare you bring up that issue? You know, mm-hmm. when the exact event that people were warning about happens, the same people who said, well, this was all a fantasy will now say that this is too real. It's not a time for your political campaign. This one is from the star Metro Star Vancouver from May 30th. Federal government's mission to save Trans Mountain jobs divides B.C. and Alberta. And then uh, the Calgary Herald from June of this year takes us along with a country divided poll finds split on Trans Mountain Pipeline, except in Alberta. These are generic news headlines you're reading. These are just like a statement of fact, right? For sure, for sure. I guess what my issue is with like the war metaphors. I mean, yes, you need to like report on the reality of the stalemate and whatever. But to be clear, like the pipeline division, when we're talking about Trans Mountain in particular, but a, a lot of cases uh, with pipelines, it really is about the government's failure and their duty to consult with First Nations. So that's really important. It, it is also a climate story. But my issue is when we're just focusing on the battle between the political leaders, it's a polarization and, you know, it's it's juicy, it's interesting, but I just don't understand what the logical end to it is like what's the storyline like do people just make up and then it's fine like I think it's the same with the polarization between like radical environmentalists on the one side and unemployed workers on the other like I want to see more storytelling that involves complex people who are like Yes, and they're both things maybe the narwhal did a great story about this with coal miners in um in Alberta, and you can recognize that climate change is real and be a real victim in the transition to a different economy. Like this is real, and people are complex. I'm going to push back a little on the on the yeah. juicy and interesting point. I mean, but maybe that's just because I don't live in BC or Alberta. I glaze over when I yeah. pipeline stories. It's like next, and you know, unless you have an economic interest in one pipeline or the other or one province's fortune, you know, I guess you're right. It's detached from a larger national issue of climate change or international global issue. And it does, it does present this as like, here are the parties, the parties are BC and Alberta. And I take your one point that like, well, there's, what about first nations? Are they not a part of this? Like you've erased them from this. And then, uh, yeah, it's interesting. You bring up this thing about, about the actual workers because like news likes conflict, which is definitely a part of these headlines, but news really likes character. And when stories about, 
pipeline policy or or province to province squabbles it's hard to like figure out the human level uh and and when you do get humans it's another polarizing thing of a radical environmentalist versus an oil worker and and you kind of like feel like i know that cliche i know who both of those people are and neither of them is me so why should i care but if you actually met those people and reported on them you might be surprised what you find yeah, for sure. I mean, I tend to be Western centric and it was a big deal out here. Everyone was talking about pipelines. But yes, I recognize that it's we beat this thing to death and it's still ongoing. However, the biggest irony for me is that as this is all playing out and you have all these war metaphors and this battle between the premiers, the actual like legitimate changes to the very mechanism that got us to, into the mess in the first place, which is like the environmental assessment process and the National Energy Board, all these reforms are happening at this exact moment playing out. And sadly, I mean, it's like the most difficult thing to engage people on, even though it's really important thing that could like actually change the outcome of these major project decisions in the future. I think that's a big tragedy here. That's a story that I, I can kind of like get my teeth into of like the government pretended to consult with First Nations, uncovering a record of obfuscation, misdirection, bad faith accountability to the public. We like paper trails where you could see people, you know, actively covering things up. Like we understand this as journalists, you know, stories lie in the, in the distinction between what public bodies say and then what documents reveal when you get your hands on them. That kind of fits into recognizable story structures. And I do find those stories interesting. You know, when, when governments are misrepresenting themselves, I find it interesting. The next example you have for us, I understand, involves... The carbon tax. Yeah. How do we choose? Okay. <laughs> I have to go with the infamous cover story from McLean's, The Resistance. The headline for that actual story was a carbon tax. Just try them. No one got past the cover. What was what was wrong with the word? Okay. Well, it got everyone talking about it for sure. McLean's Magazine's December 2018 issue features a cover photo of Saskatchewan Premier Scott Moe, Alberta's United Conservative Party leader Jason Kenney, Federal Conservative leader Andrew Scheer, Manitoba Premier Brian Pallister, and Ontario Premier Doug Ford. The article inside explores where the five leaders stand in respect to a federal carbon tax. And for Premier Moe, the picture shows there's a growing united front against the tax. It comes back to how is it helping move us forward in this thing. You know, like ultimately this is a national public policy issue that, yeah, people are divided on, but I just don't understand how white men yelling at each other gets us forward. That yelling at each other being the ongoing debate between whether we're talking about cap and trade or a carbon tax or which of these plans is going to win and, and ooh, this is what the next election is going to be fought over and Doug Ford versus Trudeau and the kind of horse race stuff about like, yeah, I yeah. mean, I feel like it's just it, it's not a secret that this is a conservative, um, you know, the conservatives were in support of carbon tax before. It's a market driven measure to address climate change. I feel like there's more constructive conversations to be had. And my big concern is like, is this the kind of coverage that makes people want to engage with the issue and want to show up to vote? Like when I talk to people and ask them why they don't vote and why they don't, they don't engage in politics, it's this kind of politicking that they're disgusted by. And I just don't feel like giving a big splashy platform to this kind of division is productive. I think also what's important um, is when we're covering politicians on this stuff too, 
I'm in the camp that we need like more rigorous fact checking to make sure that if politicians are saying stuff that's not backed up by what economists and stuff are, are telling us, then we need to like rigorously break that down and also just like explain the policy and the platform and the proposal to people clearly. And from the Star Metro Vancouver of October of this year, Site C construction carries on as First Nation challenge proceeds to trial court rules. And then we have from September 2018, the Globe and Mail audit finds boosters of Muskrat Falls mega project understated its costs. So what's wrong with those? So, I mean, I'm just pointing out that these are kind of like quintessential hydro dam mega project headlines. And yes, these are facts. It needs to be reported on. I'm not trying to nitpick on that in particular. What I'm trying to point out is that we're seeing the same narrative over and over, which is like the public watchdogs removed, the power is not necessarily needed, indigenous rights trampled over. And then in the case of Site C, there's this kind of shrug, which is a shrug like, you know, that's put forward by politicians, which is that this has gone too far to stop and the world kind of needs to move on. I think yes, we need to move on and this project is moving forward. But I think in the coverage of it, we just need to be really careful that we're listening to like Treaty 8 First Nations and we're listening to the people that are still embroiled in court cases over these projects, that we're still being critical about the decisions that are being made and looking, uh, you know, deeply at at the audits and what, um, you know, what in the case of Muskrat Falls, what's happening in the inquiry, which is happening. Well, you know, neither of those headlines say, you know, we've they're not taking editorial positions. We've gone too far. There's no turning back. These projects have to continue. I, I get what you're saying that that's implied mm-hmm. when the headline says that Site C Construction's just carrying on, even as First Nations challenge it in court, that there's sort of, uh, you know, reporters really fancy themselves as like really hard realists. And I think that that... Uh, the kind of like sober analysis that they're reflecting here is like, look, we're going to report on the fact that there's a First Nation challenge to this project, but let's be real here. It's going forward. And if it's going forward, we need to report on the world as it is, not as uh, some groups are trying to prevent it from being. It's sort of a recognition of where the power lies. And in that, it's not incorrect. But I think the danger is, if I'm getting you right, is that you're buttressing that power dynamic in the way that you report on it. You're kind of, you know, you're kind of making it like uh, if it wasn't that way beforehand, it's it's a little bit more so now, now that you've said it that way. Yeah, exactly. And we're talking about billions and billions of dollars of public expenditures that are going to, you know, stretch and really set the path for economic growth for many, many years to come well beyond the election cycle. Like this is exactly the kind of issue you want to get people engaged on and keep them engaged on. I think if we're just saying it's too late with a giant shrug and there's nothing we can do now, I think that's problematic, especially as you have really serious court cases happening and and unfolding involving Indigenous rights in a moment of reconciliation. I think it's really important to not just shrug our shoulders. And I think that's indicative of like the wider issue with climate change, too. I think it's really tempting to kind of pull the blinders down and say, hey, like the world is fucked. <laughs> well, okay. Let, maybe maybe that's a good place for us to like, in terms of picking out the greatest misses, you know, because you've really pointed out a lot of granular things that I think a lot of people don't read those stories because they're too specific and granular when you're talking about something that is like, how could you be so focused on this, this little project or this, you know, this one wildfire or this little bit of policy when what we're really talking about here is like the end of human life on the planet, which sometimes the news does 
touch, right? There are stories of like the coming apocalypse. Is that like a step in the right direction for you? No, I don't think it's helping. Um, (laughs) You have this kind of doom and gloom storytelling that is, I think, a genuine sentiment because people feel so helpless, because there's a sentiment that there's not anything that we can do and makes it easier, actually, to just kind of deny the problem. Also, like apocalyptic reporting is fodder for commentators like Rex Murphy, who who uh, wrote an editorial titled The UN Climate Change Panel That Cried Wolf Too Often, and that was for the National Post. But he's pointing out that something that's backed by psychology, which is that when you're presenting conflicting facts, I mean, science scientists not ask any, if you interview any scientist, they are really uncomfortable with like black and white truths. That's exactly what science is about. It's about unknowns, it's about recognizing what they don't know. And so by nature, reporting on any scientific stuff, you're going to have conflicting information coming, especially when you're talking about predictions for the future. And as soon as people say like, okay, then there's multiple versions of this story. Therefore, it sounds like it could possibly not be true. And it fuels denialism. So I think these headlines are are catchy. They're also really depressing. And, and frankly, they don't involve Um, They don't involve people, which is really problematic when we're talking about mass extinctions. Like I was up in Gwich'in territory with the Gwich'in Nation earlier this year in June in Northwest Territories where they meet every two years to govern and talk about caribou in particular. Like they are synonymous with the porcupine caribou herd. All of their communities are situated along the lines of that migratory path. Like talk to them about extinction and the potential for um, like the stakes are really high here. And so just... Uh, we need stories with humans in them (laughs) and not just stories about mass extinctions. I I think people are depressed enough when it comes to climate change. I'm really depressed about it. I mean, that's why you hold on to those like little things that you can do, even though like I know recycling doesn't work. I know that it's bullshit, um, but I live with my grandma and sometimes she throws paper out down the garbage chute and (laughs) long story, but (laughs) It's just like it drives me. It drives me bananas. But ultimately, I I know that it doesn't actually really do much in the grand scheme of things. And I think that's the big sentiment here. This is what we're up against as journalists. We have to find a way to communicate this stuff uh, that empowers people, that doesn't just confuse them more. Reporting on climate change is science journalism, and it's tough, and we need to do it thoughtfully. I want to return to your grandma on this recycling thing in a minute. I mean, I think that's a big part of this, to be totally honest with you, is is uh, the ways in which we have made it a matter of people's personal responsibility, whether the earth ends or not. And here's what you can do. Uh, you can recycle. Like, you know that that's not going to do anything. And yet you got to do something, right? I mean, like to me, that feels like the crux of a lot of this is why do I need to know these things? You know, I can bum myself out on a daily basis taking in the news of today's climate catastrophe. I have faith that climate change is real and man-made. I just don't believe this message that it's uh, only you can prevent forest fires and I'm, I'm personally responsible for it. Yeah, but I think there is a way to get around that. I mean, I think the like, I don't want to get, you know, too too stuck on just solely solutions journalism either. I think hard reporting is is really important. But if we're constantly just presenting all the things that are bad in the world, that's really problematic. You know, 
climate change is a crisis of imagination. People need to understand what's possible. I'm not just talking about like what you as an individual can do, but like what we can do as a society. Like that's where people like Jeff Dembicki, who writes for for Taiyi and Vice, like he does a really great job of presenting us to like an optimist version of reality of like how policymakers could actually envision this working and whether that's with the oil industry or whatever. What is the opt? I mean, look, I, I'm a solutions journalism skeptic. The idea- I figured. The, <laughs> I, I've never fully understood how it's our job to provide solutions. I mean, I take your point that we bum people out, but that it falls to us to provide action points or, and here's the opportunity. It almost feels like it's um, at odds with what we're actually here to do, which is to tell people what's going wrong. And uh, it's a very different pursuit being prescriptive. And like after you've convinced me that we have to act right now or else the worst is going to happen, and that's 20 years ago, it's hard to get me to care about what happens tomorrow. You know what I mean? It's not that people don't believe in climate change. It's that we're too convinced. You know, at a certain point, it's just like, well, I also know that one day the uh, the sun will burn out and all life on earth will die. You know, I, it, it, you can't possibly live your life concerned about that. You just kind of pretend that it's not going to happen. Yeah. I mean, this is where, uh, so Hawaii Business Magazine has this great story called The Cost of Climate Change in Hawaii. And it's a breakdown of this active discussion and policymaking and engagement with the public on like, how do we continue to sustain like a tourism economy? How do we make this work with sea level rise, with rising temperatures? Like, which issue do we address first? Like, actually, it's a window into this discussion. And I think it's just, that's where the rigorous local Local reporting, reporting actually like climate adaptation and mitigation in action, which is happening. I mean, I've reported with the Yukon News up north, like talk about like local like, climate change is, is part of the daily news cycle there. Like shit is happening to change the infrastructure and fix roadways and make sure that communities can actually like access goods and services with the changes that are happening in temperatures and, and how this affects like transportation. This stuff is happening all over the place. Like why isn't that a national story? We need to understand this stuff and it, and it hits at home. It's not just this abstract doomsday event into the future. It's like, oh, yeah, OK, here it is. And like we can do stuff about it. We have talked thus far about how many people are getting it wrong. What's the right way to report on these stories? Well, I mean, one way is to not just report on uh, big numbers out of context, I don't understand uh, what the GHG, the numbers thrown around mean. They're, they don't really mean much to me. Same with uh, billions of dollars we're getting into this scope. I, th I think uh, when we're talking about big numbers involved in all aspects of climate change reporting, we really have to break it down for people and help them re uh, relate this stuff to their lives. That really helps in terms of explaining. Also, we need to move beyond just like experts narrowly defined. I think when it comes to wildfires, when it comes to all kinds of things, let's see people as experts in their own reality. If you ask people who have lived experience with floods, who are seeing, you know, sea level rise in their communities and witnessing the changes of climate change unfold, they have really valuable, interesting stuff to say. And I think we need to get creative about accepting and embracing the fact that they're experts and move away from just scientists who, frankly, we're probably going to get what the scientists said wrong anyway, because, because that's just what journalists do best. <laughs> also, 
I think we can use technology more as well to help facilitate this in terms of really imagining it creative ways, data-driven ways, interactive ways to report this stuff. Data interactives like New York Times is just killing it with data inter- interactives. Of course, it's really expensive to produce, but you know, like they have a piece where you enter like your date of birth and your place of birth and it'll tell you like how the temperature rise will change over time and like how the place will transform. This stuff is really powerful way to engage people on an issue. Like I just think that we need to find a much cheaper <laughs> but effective way to to tell data-driven stories and engage the public so that they can explore things for themselves. That's like the fundamental reality. If you if you show me and like and I can explore what climate change is doing in my hometown, that's interesting and useful to me. I mean, for me it's like challenge accepted. Like this is a really exciting moment and like let's report on this stuff in creative ways. All right. Well, people can follow your reporting on this on the Discourses website. Lauren, thank you so much. Yeah. Thanks, Jesse. That was your Canada Land. I hope you liked it. You can email me about it at jesse at canadalandshow.com. I read everything you send me. This week, check out the last oppo of the season, a show that is universally beloved by each and every person in this country. We are on Twitter at CanadaLand. Our website is CanadaLandShow.com. This episode is produced by Ali Graham. Our managing editor is Kevin Sexton. If you like what we do, please support us and you will get ad-free podcasts. You can do that at Patreon.com slash CanadaLand. Oh, and don't forget to steal your relative's phone, you know, for like a minute and uh, subscribe them to some podcast they might like. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.